How to Build a Better Galaxy, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome to the travel show that takes you to the final frontier. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society. Javier Aguedes is the brand new PhD who is lead author of a paper that documents the creation of a galaxy called Eris. The twist is that she and her colleagues created Eris themselves. It took nine months of number crunching on a NASA supercomputer, but the resulting model is the first that looks like a galaxy out here in the real world. I'll ask Javiera how they pulled it off. Bill Nye finds the good, the bad, and the ugly in the latest news about NASA's budget from Washington. Emily Lakdawalla reports that Japanese scientists have nearly written an asteroid's life story based on a few microscopic bits of dust returned by the Hayabusa probe. Our big finish will find Bruce Betts wearing his new Star Wars t-shirt. You'll get an even more coveted Planetary Radio t-shirt if you win the new Space Trivia Contest. We'll start out this time with Bill, who was on his way to LA International Airport when we got the chance to talk. You sure spend a lot of time uh, flying around places. Well, I'm uh, en route to Texas, to the Hispanic Engineering Science and Technology Conference. We're going to get these young people in the pipeline so that we have scientists and engineers for a better tomorrow for all humankind. No big deal. And next week, I think we're going to be able to, if all goes well, talk to you in South Africa. Yeah, next week is the International Astronautical Congress, which this year is timed exactly with the anniversary of Sputnik, October 4th. And it runs all next week, and this year it's in Cape Town, South Africa, and it's it's really a wonderful event where you get people from all over the world to sit down and talk. These are people that build rockets, people that build spacecraft, and people that share this optimistic view of the future through space exploration. It's a good it's a good meeting. Anything else you'd like to talk about? Well, I just thought it was big fun in the U.S. Congress. They are still going through all these machinations about the space launch system, the next rocket which is going to have so few launches per year, it will be very expensive undertaking if it doesn't get canceled. But the good news is the James Webb Space Telescope is funded again. And this is the kind of thing, yes, it's very expensive. Yes, it's over budget. Yes, this has gone wrong. That's gone wrong. But this is the kind of mission that we humans should be doing. This is ambitious. This, as the saying goes, increases the awesome and decreases the suck. (laughs) <laughs> this really is a fantastic thing, and I'm glad that the United States government stuck with it and is doing it. And speaking of the U.S. government, you know, the uh, upper atmospheric research satellite came down, ours. It had no way to bring itself down. And I mention this because, you know, the Planetary Society, Matt, what are we excited about? Uh, well, among other things, solar sails. That's right. The solar sail, this would be pushing a spacecraft around with uh, photons. But you could also use the same sail, after you're done flying around, you could use it for a drag break and pull a satellite like the Upper Atmospheric Research Satellite down without the need to carry all that fuel all those years and the unreliability that can result from having valves that stick and so on. So it's a big big week in space news, Matt. It's exciting to be part of it. Thank you, Bill, and may you have an efficient and very safe uh, journey both to Texas and we look forward to talking to you from Cape Town next week. He's Bill Nye, the Science and Planetary Guy, the Executive Director of the Planetary Society, and he joins us every week here on Planetary Radio, as does Emily Lakdawalla, the Science and Technology Coordinator for the Planetary Society and the editor of its blog. 
Emily, good to have you back, as always. Let's start with these results from a Japanese probe that looked like it had absolutely nothing inside it when it came back. Yeah, of course. This is the Japanese spacecraft Hayabusa, which traveled to a near-Earth asteroid named Itokawa and uh, had quite the star-crossed life in the solar system. But um, through a great deal of struggle and perseverance, they brought the spacecraft back with a sample catcher that when they opened it up looked completely empty. It really didn't seem like they'd brought anything back after all of the work that they'd done to get there and back. And yet they found 1,500 microscopic particles by scraping it with a Teflon spatula. And then they found some slightly larger particles by turning the sample canister over and whacking it with the handle of the screwdriver a few times, <laughs> which just it makes everybody laugh. But, um, you know, I guess engineers always know how to make something work in the end. And then whacking things is, is often the answer. Anyway, I assumed that this amount of material with particles that were so small that they would be struggling to get any scientific results out of it. But it turns out I was wrong. Modern labs can actually make quite a lot of science out of really quite tiny amounts of sample. The results published in Science Magazine last month actually allowed them to tell a quite detailed story about the history of Itokawa, how it formed, was probably a much larger asteroid when it first formed and got smashed to bits and recoalesced and stirred up and and it's actually now kind of evaporating over time it'll probably only be around for another couple hundred million years boy a lot of knowledge to get out of uh, almost nothing returned but still enough to call uh, hayabusa a successful mission just one other thing to mention and we'll call this the image of the week you describe it as something that's becoming routine yeah, it's kind of amazing to think of it as being routine, but now we have a spacecraft in orbit around another planet that can take photos of other spacecraft that we've sent to the surface of another planet quite regularly. And the latest photo from um, Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter of the Opportunity rover sitting on the surface of the rim of Endeavour Crater after its long drive. And, you know, as usual, I, I think the thing that always gets me is not seeing the rover, but actually seeing the tracks trailing behind the mm. rover. I just, I, That just boggles my mind. And that is a September 24 entry on the Planetary Society blog at planetary.org. If you want to read about uh, Itakawa and uh, what we've learned about it uh, from next to nothing, that was on September 20. Emily, thanks as always. Thanks so much, Matt. Emily Lakdawalla is the Science and Technology Coordinator for the Planetary Society and a contributing editor to Sky and Telescope magazine. Stay with us. I'll be right back, and uh, I think we'll build a galaxy. Javier Aguedes is a young scientist we'll keep our eye on. She just earned her Ph.D. in astronomy and astrophysics from the University of California at Santa Cruz. Her legacy already includes lead authorship of a paper accepted by the Astrophysical Journal. It documents the birth of Eris, a simulated galaxy that looks and behaves more like a real galaxy than any other model. It wasn't easy to create the model in computer code, as you'll hear in my conversation with Javiera at her current institution in Switzerland. But massive mathematical simulations are clearly her passion. The poor quality of our Skype connection didn't keep me from thoroughly enjoying the discussion. Javiera, thank you so much for joining us on Planetary Radio. Thank you for the invitation. And, of course, I first looked for you at UC Santa Cruz, but that's not where you are at all. How is it that you ended up there at the uh, Institute for Theoretical Physics in Zurich? I'm actually at the ETH in Zurich. It's uh, 10 miles from the Institute. The whole work I did was uh, for my PhD was done at UC Santa Cruz. 
the day after my graduation from my PhD, I actually came to Zurich to take a postdoc position here. The postdoc offer from from the Swiss people were was a uh, uh, I couldn't resist. <laughs> I don't blame you. Congratulations on you. Uh, leading this work, which has apparently created the first simulation of a galaxy or the formation of a galaxy that really seems to look like nature. And I'm looking right now at a beautiful rendering of uh, your galaxy. So I, I guess you're in the you're in the business of building galaxies. Yes. So I'm in the business of simulating things. In general, so the first simulation that I did was on the formation actually of planets of the size of the Earth around Alpha Centauri, which was a hot topic at the time, and we actually found that in all our simulations, planets could form there. There's actually a team of people working uh, in Chile to look for those planets. I, I hope we find them that close by. I, I'm really hopeful, yeah, that the observations are going to take quite a while, but... If we do find a terrestrial planet around Alpha Centauri, that would be a big uh, deal. And so, so yeah, so I'm in the, in the business of simulations in general. I've simulated planetary systems. I've simulated black holes going around galaxies. And, and this latest simulation was on the formation of the massive spiral galaxy that moved away. Why did you name your galaxy Eris? Because in the scientific community, there was a big... Um, dissonance about what could actually be done through simulations like this. And there was a large group of people that were trying to simulate galaxies like this, and they just wouldn't come out right. When we managed to run a simulation that actually reproduced what we see in reality, we thought we would call the simulation Ares because Ares is the Greek goddess of discord. <laughs> so Very good. We knew we would cause some uh, trouble. <laughs> well, you are causing trouble because your galaxy is much more like what we see in nature. In fact, it, uh, I guess, has real similarities to our own galaxy, the Milky Way. Is that fair? Uh, yeah, so it, it, it's slightly on the low end of, in terms of mass uh, for what the value of the Milky Way is thought to be. But in terms of the ratio between the, um, the disk and the bulge. For example, the, the Milky Way has a very extended disk in a small bulge. So in terms of the ratio between those quantities and in, in terms of the distribution of the stars in the galaxy, I think it, we're, we're doing a pretty good job. So what is it about this model, this simulation, that allowed you to uh, do so much better than many, many people who have tried doing this in the past? Basically, we, put a, we, we took a really high risk, particularly because I was you know, trying to get a PhD out of things like this. And uh, the risk was on just running a simulation with an extremely high resolution. And that required that we use a lot of particles in the simulation. So the mass in, in the simulation is tracked through particles. And that meant that the simulation took a long time to run. So this is a simulation that took nine months to complete. And this was on quite a large supercomputer. Yeah, this is on the NASA supercomputer at NASA Ames. And so this is not a simulation that you can do over two weeks or three weeks or a month. This is something that took an immense amount of time. And a uh, few people were willing to not only to spend the time to do it, but I mean, imagine if after nine months your simulation turns out to be something completely ridiculous and that doesn't fit <laughs> reality at all. You know, it's a, it's a very high-risk project. Uh, that's why not many people were, were trying to do things like this. 
I also read in the press release that the model takes into account perhaps a more realistic simulation, not just of the galaxy itself, but of the stars that form it. Yeah, so we're not simulating reality here, but we're trying slowly, little by little, to approximate to what reality actually does. And what, rea uh, what reality does is that stars form in very dense clumps of gas, and this gas is very cold and dense. In, in the simulation, we cannot reach the densities of those molecular clouds that we see in reality because they're too dense and too cold. And we cannot resolve them, basically. We don't have the resolution to do it. But previous simulations were forming stars in places where actually stars cannot form at all in reality. So in this simulation, what we did is by increasing the resolution, we reach higher densities in certain places in the galaxy. And those places are approximately more like the places where real stars form in nature. Uh, so that was the key. You really, even with this model, even with as difficult as it was to create, we're not, you're not quite at the level of reality that we see all around us in the universe. No, not at all. Everything that we do in the simulation is an approximation. We can do approximations that are as good as we can do them in order to finish the simulation in a realistic amount of time. But nature, of course, that's, that's something uh, much more with much more resolution, to put it that way. We don't have the resolution of nature. That's Dr. Javier Aguedes, lead author of a paper about the creation of Eris, the most realistic galaxy simulation to ever emerge from a supercomputer. We'll pick up the conversation when Planetary Radio continues. I'm Robert Picardo. I traveled across the galaxy as the doctor in Star Trek Voyager. Then I joined the Planetary Society to become part of the real adventure of space exploration. The Society fights for missions that unveil the secrets of the solar system. It searches for other intelligences in the universe, and it built the first solar sail. It also shares the wonder through this radio show, its website, and other exciting projects that reach around the globe. I'm proud to be part of this greatest of all voyages, and I hope you'll consider joining us. You can learn more about the Planetary Society at our website, planetary.org radio, or by calling 1-800-9-WORLDS. Planetary Radio listeners who aren't yet members can join and receive a Planetary Radio t-shirt. Our nearly 100,000 members receive the internationally acclaimed Planetary Report magazine. That's planetary.org radio. The Planetary Society, exploring new worlds. Welcome back to Planetary Radio. I'm Matt Kaplan. Eris is the somewhat simplified galaxy simulation that nevertheless looks and acts like the real thing. Javier Aguedes is the young Ph.D. who was lead author of a report about Eris and its creation. It will soon be published by the Astrophysical Journal. Before the break, Javier explained how the inclusion of those giant clouds that become the birthplaces of stars was essential to the success of the model. But these stellar nurseries were not the only vital factor. What about dark matter, which has been implicated uh, lately in the formation of, of structures like galaxies? Yeah, so dark matter is one of the most important components in the formation of our galaxy. So the dark matter is in there from the beginning. So in the beginning of the simulation, there is only dark matter and there is only gas. And the distribution of the dark matter and the gas is from what we observe from the very early universe. We don't observe directly the dark matter, but we see the, the imprints in the, actually in, the, in the light. 
particularly of the cosmic microwave background, we can we can estimate roughly what the distribution of dark matter looks like, even though we actually don't know what, what it is. But we assume that it interacts with everything else gravitationally. And we put it in at the beginning of the simulation, and it's there throughout until the end of the simulation. And it's, it's an extremely important part because basically it envelops the whole thing. So it, it's containing the galaxy together. Without the dark matter, it would have been impossible to form a galaxy like this. You've already talked about what it took to actually run this model, the kind of uh, computer horsepower it took. What did it take to create the model, to create the programming, the algorithms uh, behind it? I, and do you think of yourself as, as sort of half cosmologist and, and half programmer or mathematician? Actually, the, the code that was used in the formation of this galaxy was developed by a large group of people. Those people are spread all around the world right now. They're in, in Washington, in Seattle, in uh, here in Zurich, also in, uh, in the UK. So it's a very huge team of people that created the code. So basically uh, what we did was to use this code and prepare the conditions that uh, we think were appropriate for simulating a galaxy like this. So going back in time, you know, basically millions of years after the Big Bang, and to put it all in together with the code, and that allowed us to run the simulation to today. But yes, it's, it's a kind of combination of you have to be a little bit of a computer scientist, and you also have to be a bit of a cosmologist in order to do things like this. Yeah, no question. Do you know when the paper is going to appear in the Astrophysical Journal? I just got an email a second ago saying that it will appear in, I think, the next edition. Wow, congratulations on that. Thank you. Listen, you are basically fresh out of UC Santa Cruz with a, a spanking new PhD certificate on your wall. How is it that you came to be the lead author of this uh, this paper, work that has uh, is gathering a lot of attention? And, you know, you have a team of people and everybody does, uh, you know, the, the very important parts of the project. But at some point, some person just takes, takes the lead and begins to do most of the work. And actually, the paper itself was written by many of us, not just myself. So it was a very big collaborative effort. So because I was doing most of the analysis and running the simulation and things like this, we decided that I should be the first author. But it was really more, I mean, it doesn't really mean anything. It's, the whole group worked together in the same amounts, you know. So it's, it was a teamwork. What is ahead for you? Uh, is your uh, future in Zurich, or is there a chance you'll be returning to California? I have a, a postdoc position in Santa Barbara for next year, and uh, I have an offer from Zurich for six years. So I, I am supposed to be returning to Santa Barbara next year. And we'll be happy to have you back in California, but it sounds like you have some choices. And when you say Santa Barbara, you're talking about UC Santa Barbara? Yeah, UC Santa Barbara, the Recovery so Institute for Theoretical Astrophysics. So regardless of where you end up, more simulations in your future? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. Tell us, what would you most like to simulate? I mean, is it would it be uh, refining this galactic uh, formation model, or do you have other things in mind? Uh, both. It's one of the most important things is to know if, uh, what if we use even higher resolution. You know, what, what happens if we spend even more time in, in, in simulations like this? What happens if we add more physics? And also what happens if we try to form 
even larger spiral galaxies or even elliptical galaxies that are nothing like spiral galaxies. Elliptical galaxies are big and massive and, and mostly red in color. So can we simulate those? And also another question that is very important is what is the role of uh, black holes in the formation and the evolution of, of these galaxies? Because most galaxies, as we know, do have a central massive black hole. You know, I should have asked, does Eris have a black hole in, uh, in its core? Does, Eris does not have a black hole. You know, the, the point is that people argue that sometimes you need black holes at the center in order to produce galaxies uh, like ours. But the result of the simulation shows that you don't need to have a very active black hole at the center. Uh, maybe the, 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 the function of black holes is to redden galaxies that have even bigger masses, but at the, at the mass uh, range of the Milky Way, it's probably not necessary. But we are working on this, and we will run a version of Ares with black holes in the future. I wish you many more years of very successful simulation and uh, that you get closer and closer to what we see in the universe around us. Uh, it sounds like you'll, uh, you'll be asking for a lot more hours of supercomputer time across your career. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> Thanks so much once again for uh, joining us on Planetary Radio. No, thank you, Matt. We've been talking with Javier Arguedas. She is currently at ETH Zurich, uh, but she is uh, fresh out of UC Santa Cruz, where she earned her Ph.D., and that's where she began this uh, work of simulating uh, the galaxy that she and her colleagues call Eris. It is a galaxy that uh, exists only on supercomputers and in beautiful images like the one in front of me, but it comes closer to approximating the galaxies we see around us all over the universe than any other simulation. And I'll be right back for a uh, less-than-simulated conversation with Bruce Betts for this week's edition of What's Up. We're in the office of the Director of Projects for the Planetary Society. That's Dr. Bruce Betts. So it's time for What's Up. Thank you for welcoming me to your home. Welcome to my spacious office. <laughs> it's actually a little uh, cramped in here. Did you see my really cool t-shirt? I did. Thank you so much for wearing that today. <laughs> and I know that you did have friends on Alderaan. Uh, if you know, don't know the context, folks, you got to listen to last week's uh, show from uh, Pat's, the Pacific Astronomy and Telescope Show. Up in the night sky, Jupiter dominating the evening sky, super bright. Get not, a telescope. Not Alderaan. Aww. <laughs> That's, that explains the asteroid belt. <laughs> now you're going to make me all sad again. <laughs> I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, seriously. Jupiter really bright. Pull out a telescope or even some steadily held binoculars. Check out the Galilean satellites, the four largest moons of Jupiter, uh, which you can watch move from night to night, almost like they're real and going around Jupiter as a planet. Yeah, and check out uh, Mars. It's still kind of dim and reddish, but it's a really cool planet. It's rising uh, after midnight by an hour or two, but in the pre-dawn, it'll be up uh, high high, high in the east. We move on to this week in space history. In this week in 1958, NASA was founded. Oh. <laughs> People think we planned this stuff. <laughs> Do they really? No. Uh, I didn't think so. And in 2007, 
the Dawn spacecraft was launched, now playing at Vesta, doing cool stuff. After all these years, NASA still doing some pretty cool stuff. Yeah. Uh, we move on to... Random space fact. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> URs, getting a lot of publicity. The Upper Atmospheric Research Satellite, slamming into Earth's atmosphere, burning up in a fiery thing. By the time people hear this... They and we will have known where it came down and who upon. Right. We hope not. We hope not. Or you're going to have to re-record this segment. Yes, right. We can't be giggling about it if it comes down on the White House or something. So, No, uh, we already know. It's not coming down in North America. Oh, good. I didn't realize that they'd uh, narrowed it down that far. <laughs> good for us. Yeah. <laughs> not necessarily good for everyone else. Uh huh. What's that town Muammar Gaddafi is in, uh, holed up in at the moment? <laughs> No, I'm sorry. You're confused. This is an uncontrolled re-entry. Oh, I see. Um, anyway, thought people should know a little bit about Ed. Quite the illustrious history. Launched in 91 from the space shuttle. Uh, as many people have been hearing, size and mass of a school bus coming into the atmosphere. It had 10 science instruments. Did all sorts of observations. A lot of them lasted all the way uh, until they were turned off in 2005. Measured ozone, chemical compounds found in the ozone layer, which affect ozone chemistry and processes. Also winds, temperatures in the stratosphere, as well as energy input from the sun. Multi-talented. Multi-talented. And able to uh, make really bright lights in the night sky at the end of its mission. Unfortunately, not able to leap tall buildings. <laughs> <laughs> Depends on how you look at it. Uh, let's go on to the trivia contest. I asked you, who discovered Saturn's moon Mimas? And I assume the answers were either Darth Vader <laughs> or Grand Moff Tarkin. Yes, because we know that Mimas has often been compared to that sinister battle station. Why, why here it comes now. <laughs> all right who actually discovered saturn's moon minus why it was william herschel in 1789 it was his son john another very significant scientist in that period the birth of modern science who uh, got to name it and the big crater that makes it look so much like our friend the death star yes is named herschel how appropriate. Yeah, that's great. Do you know how I know this stuff? i got to drop this in because no, it's such not. a good book. The Age of Wonder uh, by Richard Holmes. What a terrific book. And it traces this sort of beginning of modern science. And William Herschel is a major, major character in the first or uh, second section of the book. So highly recommended. And you want to know who won. I do, I do. First time, Kenneth Hudeck. You say who? Hudeck. <laughs> uh, Kenneth Hudeck from Wheaton, Illinois, is going to be picking up the Planetary Radio t-shirt this week. We did hear from lots and lots of other people. Here's the quote that Curtis Lewis and a bunch of other people sent in. This is how William Herschel noted it in his journal the night he discovered it. The great light of my 40-foot telescope was so useful that on the 17th of September, 1789, I remarked the seventh satellite, then situated at its greatest western elongation. Nice. They wrote pretty. Did he say days. anything about the feeling of evil or hearing ominous march music in the background? I think he did add that he felt a sudden ripple in the forest as if millions <laughs> of people, well, you know how it goes, I think. <laughs> Again, you have to bring it back to Alderaan. <laughs> all right, new trivia contest for you all. How many days did URs 
spend in space before its fiery plunge? How many days did UR spend in space? Go to planetary.org slash radio to find out how to enter. And you have until Monday, October 3rd at 2 p.m. Pacific time to get us that answer. Okay. All right, everybody. Go out. Look up in the night sky. Think about your favorite color, red. Thank you, and good night. Did I ever show you the great bumper sticker that I've got? It's a red bumper sticker, but it says, if this bumper sticker looks blue, you're too close. (laughs) He's Bruce Betts, the director (laughs) of projects for the Planetary Society, and he joins us every week here for What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and made possible by the Kenneth T. and Eileen L. Norris Foundation and the members of the Planetary Society. Clear skies.